Having a Gas With is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for advertising, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a Gas With Steve Albini, a recording engineer from Chicago. While Steve is primarily known for his work with a handful of A-list stars, he's been an enduring presence on the indie music scene on account of his expertise, his criticisms of the mainstream music industry, and for building his own industry-standard analog recording studio, Electrical Audio. Uh, how are things in Chicago? How is How are things in Chicago generally in COVID season? Well, you know, everything's on ice. The, um, the studio's closed. Nobody's working. Uh, all of my normal pursuits are shut down. Um, normally, when there's a slowdown in the studio, there are other things I can do to earn a living. And uh, all of those are out the window as well. So it's kind of a, a bleak outlook at the moment. Yeah, I uh, I can't tell what the, the difference in mood is in the US generally from over here. I mean, we, we've been quite well supported uh, yeah we our, haven't yeah I, I got that sense how's it been what, what's your take on the political well i know how you feel about the government but <laughs> yeah well um there is a, a kind of a manufactured interest in reopening the economy um and that's it's a it's a fictitious movement that is being used as a justification for taking people off of social support. Like if you're the way the unemployment system works in the, in the States is that if you are terminated involuntarily from a job, um, like if you're laid off from work, then your employer pays a portion of your old salary and the government pays a portion of your old salary and you get this unemployment benefit for a period of time. Um, what they've done by reopening the economy in certain places is make it so that if you, if you aren't working because of the virus, but not because your business has been, uh, forced closed by a closure order, then you're not entitled to any benefits. So it's a way of saving money and harming poor people while claiming to support the interest of business. Businesses don't want to reopen because there's no business to do. Like if my studio was open right now, there would be nobody waiting to come in here to make a record. So it would be of no value. The, the economy is not closed because there is an order to close the economy. The economy is closed because people don't want to fucking die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, got, I've got the sense that there's a real opposition between federal and, and state legislature over there as well. Well, the, the states have had to do essentially all of the emergency management because the federal government has just abdicated there. I mean, Trump doesn't know anything and he doesn't want to know anything and he doesn't want to do anything. He just wants to avoid being blamed for having done something. So he's basically said the federal government is going to do nothing. It's all in the state's hands. You guys have to figure it out on your own. Uh, and that has been a disaster because there are a lot of state governments that are in the hands of Republicans who are, um, 
frankly not interested in the function of government. Like what they want to do is they they want the government to fail in its response so that they can then say the government is the problem. Yeah, yeah, because I kind of got the impression that the idea of a a government-mandated lockdown doesn't sit well with um, axiomatic American values of individual liberty and small government. Yeah, that's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. Like a, a mandated shutdown is the way that you ensure that everybody does things in a safe manner. Like at the moment, there are certain certain places that are real uh, hothouses for the coronavirus, like meatpacking plants in particular, are that's where uh, like the lion's share of the new cases and the new outbreaks are coming out of these meatpacking plants where people are working in close quarters all the time. And if you say that the plants can voluntarily close or that they can voluntarily protect their workers, then there's an economic disadvantage to any plant that behaves ethically because then it, they close and their employee and their uh, competitors get the business or they spend a lot of money and their competitors are more profitable, whatever. So the only way to do it is to mandate it is to say that you guys just have to fucking close because you're spreading this fucking disease and killing people. But, uh, and the businesses know this, like, like I run a business, I would love for my business to be up and running. I also know that there's not going to be any business for me to do while the virus is still this virulent. Like while there's no treatment for the virus, people are not going to want to come and gather at our studio in a group of people that, you know, so that they can then infect each other. It's just not going to fucking happen. Yeah. Well, when did you, uh, when did you first become aware that this was going to become a thing? So presumably, you know, you were, work was going on at Electrical. Yeah, my band was on tour in the beginning of March, and um, the first couple of shows seemed normal. Then we started to notice people being, you know, we started to hear more about the effects of the virus, and and then literally over the course of the week that we were on tour, it went from being not something we need to worry about to being we're canceling these shows because it's not safe to have these shows. Wow. so it really escalated rapidly here. It went from being a thing that everybody was conscious of, but nobody was particularly concerned about, to being the only thing on anybody's mind in the span of about a week. And this shows the exponential um, rate of growth of infection with this virus. Like We went from having a very small number of cases to having thousands of cases very quickly. And now we're over 80,000 dead. Uh, and there, it's conceivable there could be a quarter million people dead by, this, by the fall. I mean, it's just a staggering number of people being affected and killed and people being killed and otherwise affected by this virus. And everyone, you know, people, I'm enormously heartened by the fact that whenever I open a door and look out in the world, I see people wearing masks I see people wearing gloves, like everyone who has to work is wearing gloves and masks, and they're keeping their distance from everybody. That, to me, shows a profound awareness of each other, right, which makes me feel good. And I'm, I know that this could be the end of my business. I could lose my studio, which has been my life's work, 
and I could lose my house and I could lose all the security I have in my life. I could lose the ability to cover my expenses and pay for my wife's health care. Uh, I could lose all of that. And it's, that's terrifying as a prospect. But when I compare that with what I would feel if I was the rationale for a bunch of people to get together and get sick and some of them dying, I would feel much worse if I was a, you know, if I, if I was a vector for infecting other people. Yeah. Uh, before, uh, before that was the, the tour with shellac. I'm, I'm sorry to say I missed it when yeah. it came through Manchester. I've um, seen you guys a couple of times and it is one of the best, one of the best live things going, and I hope we can get back to it soon. Uh, how was that tour? Was it a successful one? Good, uh, good crowds internationally. The tour was fine. Yeah, everything was everything was cool. It was just before the election and during the election, so there was a, a really every everything was very tense. You know, everybody was really on edge. Um, it didn't. I, I, I'm I was baffled by it, but it didn't seem like the like labor would win and it it blew my mind that people given the chance to get rid of the tory government didn't get rid of the tory government it, it, but i mean we've done dumber things over here yeah well it's, it's it's um it's certainly not clear it's not clear the way things are going the way things are going to go you've got an election coming up this year and what? last time we spoke was after the previous one and I, obviously I know that you were a Bernie Sanders supporter and I'm guessing that you maintained that the current election cycle. Yeah, I mean, I, my, I actually would have preferred to see Elizabeth Warren be the nominee. Uh, I think there's still a chance she sh could get added to the ticket as a vice president, and which would be great. I think uh, Biden is an embarrassment. He's a sundowning, nearly senile, uh, old apparatchik, like he's a, he's a suit and tie uh, Democrat and he, you know, toes the party line. I, I think he is an unambitious and uninspiring candidate and he wants to accomplish nothing. I'm, I'm certain he'll be successful in that. Um, if he's elected, he will accomplish nothing. Uh, and I, I think he's a complete waste of an opportunity. Of course, I'm going to vote for him because I have no no other option, no viable option. But I would feel much better about voting for him if Elizabeth Warren was vice president, because then if his senility becomes even more apparent, then she could step in and we would have a quality president, you know. Yeah. What do you think the U.S. Uh, political system is in need of, in dire need of? The biggest thing is that we need to eradicate, we need to remo remove Republicans from every public office. Um, the Republican Party has become a white nationalist party. It's um, enabled fascism, the rise of fascism in this country. Uh, it, Mussolini defined fascism as the fusion of corporate and state interests. And that's effectively what we have in this country. The, the court system has been completely overwhelmed with rabid, radical right-wing judges, which means that we have a generation of atrocious court rulings coming down. Um, and the only effective remedy is to replace all the elected officials, replace every Republican elected official. That's what we need. We just need to, we need to nullify and uh, make 
immaterial the Republican Party. Well, I mean, that's obviously that's a radical change, but uh, it's not like, well, it, it's not predictable times and it's not like anyone is suggesting that what's going on at the moment isn't in need of some kind of radical change on, on both sides of the aisle. But um, my suspicion is that the, uh, the Joe Biden being on the ticket uh, is because this election will be seen as a referendum on Trump and, you know, it's seen as, who is the most, what would you say, electable, if not the most ambitious to remove Trump from office? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's all, all of that is bullshit. It's just the, there's a, there's an established, the establishment Democratic Party did not want to see socialist change. And the progressive wing of the Democratic Party wants to see socialist change. Uh, and the establishment wing of the Democratic party controls all the formal apparatus and pulled every possible string. Like they went, they went to the wall to try to stop Bernie Sanders and, um, doing that. Uh, I mean, they, they were more enthusiastic about stopping Bernie Sanders than they've ever been about trying to stop a Republican. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I think the, the radical change that's needed in the democratic party is to allow the younger, more energetic, um, progressive wing of the party that has all of the good ideas and all of the popular ideas to allow them a seat at the table and, and let all of the pro-business and um, the aristocratic, old-school democratic uh, party identity, let that recede into history. I don't think anyone's in the business of making any predictions at the moment. I can only hope that in the next four years, we are in a, a better time. I have felt, I have felt in, a, in as uncondescending ways I can manage. Quite sorry for America watching the daily briefings from the president oh, yeah, and yeah. his That's, team. It's not, it's not condescending at all. We're, our president is, is, an, is a psychopath and he's a narcissist and he's, you know, borderline personality disorder, crazy maniac. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't want to know anything. He doesn't, yeah, he's, he's the, 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 the great embarrassment of my lifetime is that we have him as president. Yeah. Well, um, for the time being, um, shall we see if we can talk about some music and some sure. things that have defined your life in more positive times? Although, I'd, yeah, I don't know. I know it's been, a, it's definitely been a, an uphill battle. I know that running a studio the size of electrical audio is, is not a cheap or easy feat. Um, but how have the last how have the last few years been? You know, just in terms of keeping it up and um, yeah, keeping uh, it going. From a business standpoint, we we've done fine. You know, like we can cover our bills and pay our expenses. There, there. You know, the more mature you get as a business, the better you get at managing the sort of day to day operations. And we've made some efficiencies to streamline certain trivial things like, you know, made it easier to play with, pay with credit cards and made it made bookings a little bit faster using more online tools and that sort of thing. Like nothing radical has changed about the practices in the studio, but the sort of operational things have gotten a little more efficient and a little, a little smoother. Um, uh, you know, we built the studio to be a live performance space for musicians, and it's remained essentially that. 
And as long as people want to play together and make records, I hope that we'll have a place. Um, that might be all coming to a crashing close right now. I don't know. Well, I really cross my fingers that it doesn't because, you know, I know I've seen electrical. I've seen, well, I've not been there, but, I, you know, I've seen what it's like and how professionally it's set up and, and maintained. And I, I'm sus I suspect that it's a rarity for bands, for, you know, small ensembles with not much money to be able to record in quality recording spaces in general at the moment. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's so gratifying about this place is that we built it as a resource for the musical community. And it's great to be able to see people who would not otherwise be taken seriously be taken seriously and people who would not otherwise have a chance to work in a nice acoustic space with good microphones and trained engineers and good equipment and, and to, to be able to have that experience, which is kind of disappearing. Yeah, I see um, a lot more... Uh, laptop production and single microphone setup. I mean, in in the Manchester music scene where we are, that's uh, almost exclusively what's being made at the moment. Um, and uh, it's not it's not clear to me that if people want to set up a band at the moment, that they would yeah they would have anywhere affordable to go. And I I it seems that to record amplifiers and, and voices and things like that properly, especially in a live session, it requires much more spe specialist knowledge than being able to throw up microphones and, and hope it gets the job done. Yeah, but I mean, I, I got that specialist knowledge by doing it, you know, uh, by running the experiment many times. Like I started as, an, as a rank amateur, not knowing the, which end of the microphone to point. And, um, you know, I built up a skill set over time by doing it, and I think it's certainly reasonable that other people could do that as well. It's it's just the sort of the institution of the studio that's collapsed. I think the the interest in recording is still there. Like there are still active recording programs at universities and dedicated schools to teach recording, so people are still interested in doing it. Um, and I, I think the you know, the, the ensemble nature of music, like when you have a bunch of people playing together, that has a special quality and you can't simulate that. You can layer sounds over the top of each other, but you don't get the interaction between the people. You don't get the sort of breathing quality that you get when everyone's playing the same note together and you don't get this sort of synchronized starting and stopping that you get when people are articulating notes together that they've rehearsed together. So I think ensemble recording is something that you really can't fake. Um, and that's, that's why studios are still necessary, but they are becoming a much smaller part of the recording landscape as music becomes more stylized and more abstracted and further removed from the idea of people playing together in a group. Yeah, you've uh, been around uh, long enough, respectfully, to see a few trends come and go. Uh, has there been a time where you've seen that kind of trend for more and more abstraction and removal from this, uh, a real sound come and go back into reality? Yeah, in the late 70s, production started to get more and more elaborate. And then in the 80s, there was a sort of a shift toward a minimal electronic thing where uh, drum drummers were being replaced by drum machines and keyboards were typically sequenced and, um, you know, there were a lot of direct injected instrument sounds and not much acoustic recording going on. That that paradigm was pretty 
prevalent in the eighties. Like there were, there was a lot of uh, push button music as um, it was derisively called in the day. Um, that, you know, then some people began incorporating those elements into a live band context. And then, and there was also a reaction against that kind of stylized artificial production aesthetic, which, um, you know, there was a sort of a resurgence of, of several kinds of music that were antithetical to that, the kind of singer songwriter, simple um, person singing and playing uh, their own music like that became a very popular idiom and then rock music had a resurgence in the grunge era for example where you had a very straightforward very simple presentation of a of a rock band playing their songs i think all of these styles of music all have their place and i think that there's no correct or incorrect way to make a record i just think that the the facility being able to accommodate any number of people playing together um, dictates coming to a, you know, a professional studio. If you have something like that, that you have to record. Yeah. We're uh, my studio. We, we basically just serve uh, bespoke composition in the UK advertising industry. So we get asked a lot to simulate that kind of sound. Yeah. And um, it's an interesting sort of looking through the wrong end of the telescope procedure that we do where you're uh, increasingly using uh, artificial reverbs to simulate the sound of a live room uh, as a, well as opposed to using it as, um, as an effect. But what we end up doing is, you know, not just us, but people in our, in our general marketplace is we treat the mix as the place where all the decisions get made. Yeah, that's becoming a convention in the digital paradigm where in the analog idiom, you, you have to arrange the music and rehearse it and prior to recording. And in the digital paradigm, the recording seems like a, almost an afterthought, almost a, you know, like a, an unimportant detail. The real work is done in the editing and the manipulating and the mixing. And in the analog world, you do most of that work prior to the getting into prior to walking into the studio. Even you get all the sounds and all the arrangements together and have everything worked out. That way, you're spending a minimum amount of time in the studio. Whereas when you're in a, not in a studio environment, when you're not in a professional environment, then the the time becomes the cheapest of the resources. Like it would cost money to have somebody play a real drum kit. So. Yeah, you know, the the amount of time that you spend fiddling with the samples to try to make them sound convincing, like that time is of no value really. When you're recording a session, do you feel like you make many of the uh, what I would call the mixed decisions? You know about you know frequency balance and and uh, who will have loudness priority? Do you find yourself doing that with microphone placement and choice, and it's sort of like mixing before it goes into the box? Well. To to an extent, but the main thing that you're doing is you're trying to represent what's going on in the room. So um, the the playback, the, what you're listening to, uh, the playback is a is a form of mixing. You know, if somebody's like, "Yeah, I can't hear the bass guitar well enough," and you, you know, you you end up nudging the bass guitar up. And so the whole time you're working, you're building a kind of reference of what the balance should be like by the preferences of the people listening in the playback, you know? 
So by the time you get to the mixing stage, you have a pretty good idea what are the important and unimportant elements. You have a pretty good idea of what the sort of general sound stage is going to sound like. So uh, in that context, like where you start recording and you're working on things continuously and then you segue into mixing, the, the mix decisions are, most of them are quite obvious. Like, you know, majority of the mix decisions are balance and placement. And then there's a small amount of fiddling around that you wanted that you'll end up doing for special effects or for, you know, spatializing or whatever. But the bulk of the work is being done in, in the balancing, making things louder and quieter and placing them in stereo. And the more you, more opportunities you have to listen to that in a, in a context where someone can tell you what their preferences are, then the better you are at that when, when the moment comes to print the final mix, the more, the more information you have. I know there are some people who will mix other people's recordings, just they're mix engineers and you just send them whatever and they'll find a way to balance it and mix it. I, f I find that um, almost baffling. You know, if I'm not there from the beginning, I really don't get what any of these sounds mean to each other. And it's hard for me to make a relationship between them that isn't patterned on something else, you know. Yeah, well, the difference there is that you're very much uh, client-led, aren't you? You're sort of acting yeah. as a, a conduit between what they want and then getting it onto the tape. Whereas um, if you get someone like, I don't know, say Chris, yeah, Chris Lord Alge, if that's how you say his name, and you know he will get sent 190 channels of audio and presumably a few thousand dollars for a track. Um, and I've seen him on, uh, I think it's on Mix with the Masters. I know you've done that as well, uh, that series. Where um, he it, it's been set, it's been set out on the desk and uh, just starts listening to drums and going okay I think I'm going to compress the overheads but just in, impulsively like reach for a compressor for that so that's where it's less client led and more you know uh, auteur I know how it, I have my sound and I'm going to try and bring it into that soundscape. Yeah, I'm not I'm not good enough to do something like that. Like I I have to trust that the the band have their ideas together and that they know what their music is supposed to sound like and my job is just to execute it for them. Um I'm not definitely not qualified to you know to make those decisions for for somebody else just for a start, there's a lot of kinds of music that I just don't understand. Like there's music that isn't part of my experience and that I, where I'm not culturally embedded in that music. So when that music comes in, if I'm expected to mix it and be sensitive to whatever their expectations are, I'm going to be absolutely lost. But if I'm in the room with those people while that music is being built up from nothing and we're having conversations about the relative significance of different things and what what's meant to be emphasized and you know what the impression it's supposed to make is, then by the time we get to the mixing, I've already incorporated, I've taken all of that on board and I already have already like I've learned to hear that music, you know, but if it just comes in over the transom, just random sound, like I'm not going to know what to make of it. I'm, you know, I can put something presentable together where you can hear all the elements, but that's hardly the same as being, you know, artistically and, sen and uh, sensitive to the material and, and getting the best out of it. So uh, for our um, for our English audience and for our London audience, you did a fairly lengthy session at Abbey Road at one point, didn't you? I've done a bunch of records at Abbey Road. I've probably done a dozen or more records at Abbey Road. It's a fantastic facility. I really loved working there. 
I haven't been there in a couple of years, but um, I I really really admire the way that studio is operated. Just you know, they've kept all of the oral tradition going, so they have they all the received wisdom and all the the there's a long oral history of information there that's available to everybody. They have records of everything. They've kept maintained all the classic equipment, you know. So if you come into a session and you say, yeah, I'd like to use the 16 track machine that Pink Floyd recorded on and they'll, they'll say, okay, I'll go get it. And they bring this machine in and then you get to make a record on the same machine that Pink Floyd did. I think that's a really wonderful um, way to approach your, your, the business is just to maintain that history, to maintain the facility so that what was significant about it to you 20 or 30 years ago, you could still have that same significance now, you know? Yeah, which uh, you can't obviously imagine happening with, uh, can I use the Mac Pro that they recorded uh, yeah. X, you know, XYZ on? But um, So what? apart from, obviously the big one, uh, and the one that I might um, see if you've got an anecdote from is, is the Page and Plant record, but what else have you done at Abbey Road? Um, I did a, a shellac record there. I did a record for the auteurs there. I did a record for um, a band called Vent, which was uh, Miles from the Wonder Stuff, Miles Hunt from the Wonder Stuff's band. Uh, I did a record for a band called Bush. Uh, it was principally done there. Um, did some smaller bands. There was a band called Rosa Mota. I did an album with them there. Um, yeah, off the top of my head, that's what comes to mind. But I'm, I'm, there are more, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm forgetting people. And is it, is it relatively easy to plug in and play there, so to speak? If you know, you know the the tools of the trade. I mean, for me, it's supremely comfortable. It's a nicely maintained, well organized analog studio. It's like, you know, it's right in my wheelhouse. If I, but if I was coming in off the street and I had no experience with an analog studio, I, I don't know what I would make of it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I know that, uh, well, I, I've been attracted by the fact that they've made, they've made it more commercially available for lower budget uh, recordings. Um, but uh, I know that, well, as, as mentioned before, the Page and Plant record was mm. not by any stretch low budget, was it? No, that's the longest I've ever worked on a single record, yeah. that We, we did a, an initial test session at a studio called Rack in London, and that was just, we spent four days, recorded a few, and mixed a few songs. Just the, the main rationale there was to get to know each other, to see if they liked my working methods, to see if, we, if, I, if I could do a good job for them. And that session went well. And at the end of that session, we said, okay, yeah, let's, let's strap in. Let's do the whole thing. Um, and then I think it went from July through, through Christmas at Abbey Road. There was a short break in the middle there. Robert Plant's mother unexpectedly died. But there was a scheduled two-week little hiatus in the middle there. And during that two-week hiatus, I was able to record and mix a couple of other records, and also my band went on tour. <laughs> so a very productive two-week break. But then at the conclusion of that session, I had been out of commission for six months, like working on that record. So there was a kind of a lull in the schedule on the way when I came home. There was like a, a gap in the schedule because I hadn't been booking anything. I'd been 
you know, had, had sort of had to keep everything open-ended for the page and plant session. Was that, we, did you have electrical open at the time? We had just opened, we had opened Studio B and Studio A would come online about a year later. Okay, so uh, was there a, a bit of a break in the construction schedule as well? Because I know that, you know, you guys all built it, didn't you? Everyone who works there. Yeah, no, I mean, that carried on with me gone. Like the, the construction was, you know, kind of wrapping up at that point. Studio B was finished and we started making records there. And shortly after, you know, whilst, and during that whole period, construction was carrying on in Studio A and then Studio A was finished about a year and a year and a half later. But uh, which, uh, did you say you did a shellac record at Abbey Road as well? Yeah, the shellac album Terraform was principally recorded there. Right, yeah, no, that's, uh, one thing I like about shellac, and I think I've said this before, is uh, you can take uh, Action Park and you can take Dude Incredible and there's, um, they all sound like they could, to me anyway, they all sound like they could have been recorded at the same session in the same year. The sound quality and the, the production style is absolutely consistent. Um, are, is there anything, you know, is, is, is there anything unfinished, anything in the works? Is it going to be another album? Well, we we have the bulk of an album that we're we were preparing to record at the point when the all the COVID nineteen bullshit happened. So, I mean, we'll probably pick it up at some point when it's safe to reconvene and and make records again. We'll carry on, pick up where we left off, and we have a, a, an album's worth of material that we've been playing live uh, as part of our sets. So, you know. We have another record we're good to go on. We just haven't, we don't have the time to do it at the moment and it's not safe to do it at the moment. But I'm, uh, yeah, very much looking forward to it because it's been six years since Dude Incredible. And, um, you know. Yeah, uh, that's about our pace. Like, that sounds about right. <laughs> well, like uh, John Paul Jones said, five years is five minutes in Zeppelin time. And I think it's the same for Shellac. We, we have a concept within the band of our own sense of time, which has to do with the fact that typically we're quite busy individually and we only get to spend a small amount of energy on the, on the shellac. So, you know, what a normal band could accomplish in a week, you know, get three or four practices and a gig in, like that it represents six months or more for us, you know? Um, so it's, you know, the, the time scale for us is just extremely extended. And when I think, like, I can think of our new songs, the new songs that we're working on are themselves, some of them three, four, five years old. And some of them we've been playing live for that amount of time. And so we've, we've got years of experience playing these songs, but they're still the new ones because we haven't formalized them by recording them. And they're also the most recent things that we've worked on. It just, we work at a glacial pace and our lives normally are quite busy. So we don't have time to do the concluding work of finishing a recording as quickly and as conveniently as a lot of other bands do. I'm satisfied with it because I feel I'm still proud of everything we've done. And I feel like we've never made a record in a kind of an unnecessary uh, frame of mind. Like we've never made a record under time pressure we've never made a record that was kind of for the sake of doing another record like we haven't done a record in a while let's do a record we 
we generally just record our material when it's ready and release it when the record is finished and we don't worry about time really otherwise yeah for our um aspiring uh independent musicians um one of the one of the noteworthy things about shellac is um i don't think you would disagree that it's definitely not a mainstream pursuit a mainstream music pursuit uh, yeah i mean we are we are all sort of products of the punk era. We were all, we all sort of came of age and developed our appreciation of music during the punk era. And the one thing that you can say about everybody involved in that was that we didn't give a shit if regular people liked us or our music, like, and that has sort of carried on that sort of persisted. We're making our music to suit ourselves. And if other people like it, that's good for them, but we're not doing it for them. We're doing it for ourselves. But the inspiring thing about that is, even with that attitude, I think a lot of people fear having that attitude in case people don't turn up, but you still manage to sell out shows across Europe, across the USA, um, and probably a few places I've not mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, part of that is just due to our stubbornness. Like, we just haven't quit, you know? And if you stick around long enough, eventually people have heard your name enough that they get curious and then they'll come and see you at least once. And I, you know, I like to think that we are, uh, you know, I enjoy playing live more than any other part of the band. And I like to think that all of us at the gig are all having the same experience. Like I, if I feel like we're having a great show, I would like to think that everyone at the show would feel like they were having a great show, you know? Um, I, and I think that's the important thing for us is to like when we're playing a show, we're not just performing for other people. We're not doing something, doing tricks in front of other people. We are trying to have a communal experience with them. And what's happening on stage is part of it. But the relationship that we have with the audience, I think, is the, the majority of it. Like the majority of it is just the feeling that we're all here in the room together and we're all having the same experience and that it's valuable for us to all be straight with each other and to, and to be open with each other. And I feel like that is the punk rock contribution. I, I, I suspect that before punk rock, there was a, a clear fourth wall, a division between performer and audience and audience are there to admire performers, but punk. Yeah. It's the concept of show business as opposed to the concept of communal art. Like, you know, show business is there's a routine. You come out, the performers come out and they do the routine and the, and the, you know, the performers are divorced from the material that they're performing. Like, you don't expect the person on stage in theater to believe the lines that he's telling that he's, he's reading at the moment. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a form of show. It's a, it's, a, it's play acting, it's pretend. And the same was, you know, the same was true with vaudeville or whatever, you know, or the same is true with, you know, any other kind of performance at that point. And punk was really a breakdown in that. And the punk was like, you know, you know, those conversations that we have in the car or those arguments that we get into in the bar, let's have those arguments on stage and let's involve everyone in the room in those arguments. And let's, you know, those experiences that we have when we're, you know, drunk and trying to find our way in the world, let's have those experience in a big group and, and do them in public. And, and I feel like those, like that was the, the thing that punk brought to 
performance was that it removed this notion that the performance was was different from the rest of your life. That that performance on stage just meant that for that hour or so you were going to be on stage with everybody and everybody else was going to be looking at you. And that gave you an opportunity to engage everybody in the room and whatever's going on in your mind, you know? So I've tried to maintain that feeling because that's the feeling, the sensation that I got when I would go to a show and, and it was a really invigorating show as an, as an audience member, when I was a teenager, you know, when I first got exposed to punk music, I would go to a show and I would feel like there was this insane thing happening all around me on all sides of me. It was a full, like five senses experience of a moment, you know, and I, I cherish the, that feeling and I want to, I want to be a part of that feeling, not for necessarily for everybody else primarily, but for myself again, I want to feel that, that sensation of being in the moment with a whole bunch of people when something awesome was happening. Do you, um, well, I don't know. Do you keep up with, I feel like I, I feel like I sound like I'm out of touch when I say new musical trends. But you know, do you keep up with anything that's currently evolving? Uh, I mean, there's a, an aspect of my job that makes that inevitable, in that there are always new people coming into the studio playing their music in front of me, like all, all day, every day. So there is an element of inescapable realism there where I'm like, I, I know some of what's going on just by virtue of the fact that I'm seeing a lot of it. And then I'm in conversation with all, all these people. And, um, but I, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not that tuned into trends and, uh, especially not in popular music, like pop music has kind of escaped me from my, the bulk of my adult life. Sometime in the 19, late 1970s, I shut the radio off and I haven't turned it on again. So I don't really know what other people are listening to in the mainstream. And I'll have to admit that it's, I've never felt any, that my life hasn't been rich enough for not being exposed to pop music. And whenever I do like encounter some pop music, like when some of it is thrust at me in some public place or whatever, uh, I, I don't miss it. I don't think I'm missing anything. No. And I presume you also don't have... Um, uh, this, I, I pre you don't strike me as the kind of person who has a, uh, a bucket list of people you'd, who you'd like to see in the studio who haven't been yet. Uh, no, I mean, there are you know, certain heroes of mine that I would, it would be really gratifying to be able to work with them. People like Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton, Neil Young you know, ZZ Top, things like that, you know, like I, on one hand, I, I think I could do a good job for those people. And on the other hand, also I adore them. And I think it would be amazing to, to work on some of their records, but I have had that opportunity in a number of cases. Like I got to work on a Stooges album and I got to hang out with Iggy Pop for a month. And, and that's fucking amazing. I, I've done sessions with Cheap Trick and I consider them friends. And I've, you know, I've gotten to work with a lot of people who were heroes of mine, you know, Fred Schneider from the B-52s, I consider him a friend. And I can't complain about the way my professional life has gone. I feel like I've, I've gotten full measure of all of those kind of joys that, that somebody could have in my position. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's definitely, um, it's, a good, it's a good place to arrive at. Um, and it might be a good place to leave it because you're coming up on, uh, what time is it there? Is it coming on 1 p.m.? 
Uh, yeah. Right. Well, you know, thanks for your time. Sorry we lost a bit at the start with the passwords, etc. But um, it's been good to speak to you again. And sincerely, I hope things uh, work out. I hope things pick up for Electrical and for the USA. Thank you. I appreciate it. I hope I hope you get some political satisfaction in your lifetime. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I'm I, I'm I'm pretty used to being disappointed by it.